Hello, friends. Welcome to Josiah Venture Stories. Gwen Gardner here, and I have a special episode for you today. For the month of January, we are changing things up a bit with the podcast. Instead of our regular interview-style episodes, we will be sharing the teaching from the main talks from our last fall conference. This is the first time we are using the podcast platform to share teaching like this. We are kicking off the year with a big reminder that, as believers, we are messengers of hope. Happy New Year, everyone. We are starting 2023 with hope. What is the first word that comes to your mind when you describe yourself? An athlete, a reader, a musician, a father or mother, a sister or brother, a youth leader, or just a generally fun person? On top of these important titles, there is one that is easy to forget. You are also a messenger. If you know Jesus, you have a message of hope that others desperately need to hear. In a world torn apart by instability and war, your hope in Christ is the only message that truly overcomes darkness and despair. This past fall, around 400 youth ministry specialists from 18 Central and Eastern European countries came together after a two-year break for our movement conference designed to fuel God's work among young people across the region. The theme was Messenger of Hope. In the evenings, we heard some fantastic teaching by three Josiah Venture missionaries, Dave Patty, president of Josiah Venture, Paul Bowman, the Josiah Venture director for the United Kingdom, and Yuli Muhammadi, the Josiah Venture country leader for Albania. For the month of January, we are sharing their talks on the podcast. We hope you enjoy these encouraging talks and that you are inspired to be a messenger of hope. It's my prayer this week that... When you leave here in a few days' time, that you leave with full sails and a full heart and renewed passion to carry the fire back to your countries and your cities and your communities and your churches. Carry this message of hope that they desperately, desperately need to hear. Tonight, we're going to look at one of my favorite Old Testament stories. We're going there. So grab your Bible and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9, 2 Samuel chapter 9. And while you're looking that up, can I just share with you that in my youth group, We love to play games. I'm sure you do as well. And it's now the fall where I'm from, the autumn. And uh, the seasons are changing. The nights are getting shorter. It's getting darker earlier. And that means we get to play one of my favorite games, one of our youth group's favorite games. It's called... Gargon. Doesn't it just sound good? Right? Gargon. And you play it in the dark. Right? And the whole object of the game is you secretly designate one of your group or one of your leaders to be the Gargon in the game. And then you get a flashlight and you 
you disassemble the flashlight. So you take off the top with the bulb and the reflector, and you, you take the body and you take the batteries, the power source, and you hide it all around the building or the room, the venue where you're going to play the game. And the object of the game is when you let the kids in there, they have got to try and find all the different parts as they fumble around in the dark and assemble it and turn it on and shine the light on the gargon. And when they do, the light exposes, reveals the gargon. It extinguishes the darkness and the gargon is revealed and the game is over. Unless, unless the gargon can tag, capture, rugby tackle to the ground, the members of the youth group. Because once they get tagged, they're frozen to the spot and they can no longer move. Isn't that the coolest game you've ever heard? (laughs) And it's like hide and seek taken to the next level. Because kids are hiding under chairs. They're hiding under tables. We played it in the church sanctuary one night. They were hiding under pews, hiding in the pulpit. One kid hid in a cupboard, and he hid in there so long, none of us could find him, and he fell asleep. (laughs) It's just this game that's filled with excitement and drama and tension and even a little bit of fear. And the reason I share that with you, apart from giving you a really cool game idea, is that the story we're going to think about tonight is a real-life game of hide-and-seek. It's a real-life game of hide-and-seek. So let's read it, shall we? 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness, that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Now hearing that, you're probably not gripped. You're probably not thinking right now, forget the rings of power on Amazon Prime. I'm just waiting for 2 Samuel chapter 9 because that's where it's at. You're probably not, maybe you're thinking right now, Paul, Paul, that's a really strange story that you have decided to share with us in your weird accent at fall conference tonight. 
but stay with me. Friends, stay with me because this is not just a story. This is your story, and this is my story. And we can't fully appreciate what's going on here on the stage of Scripture as this drama unfolds until we know something about some of the characters in this story. So the first one is this, Saul. He's the first character in this drama that's unfolding. God's people had a land and now they wanted a king. Samuel told them, God is your king. But they said, we want a king that we can see like all the other nations have. And Saul was king material. He was tall. He was handsome. He was heroic. But he did not have a heart for God. One day he was faithful, and the next day he was faithless. And we know his story ends in tragedy because he did not give his all to God. And that brings us to the second character in this story because God had another king in mind, and that's David. David started out as a shepherd, was a pretty good musician too. And he was skilled, he was skilled with the use of a weapon that shepherds used. A weapon that enabled him to slay a giant and he became a national hero overnight. The woman came out of their houses and they sang songs about David. They sang, Saul has slain his thousands, but David, 10,000. And from that day forward, we're told in the scripture that Saul was insanely jealous of David. And that made it really difficult for the third character in this story so far. And that is Jonathan, Saul's son, but David's very best Friend. Their friendship is recorded as one of the most famous and greatest friendships in history. But if Jonathan is going to be loyal to his dad, that, mean he ha- that means he has to betray his best friend and vice versa. And it all comes to a head in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 20, verses 13 to 17 because they have a secret meeting, David and Jonathan together. And Jonathan knows everything is falling apart. He knows by this time that Samuel has identified David as the king after God's own heart at the end of Saul's reign. And he asks David to promise he'll be loyal to his family. And these few verses... I would suggest are some of the most moving verses in scripture. Listen to this. But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely. If I do not let you know and send you away in peace, may the Lord be with you 
as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. And these two friends embraced one another and they wept together and they never saw each other alive from that day. And by the time we get here to 2 Samuel chapter 9, lots of things have happened. Saul has fallen in battle and by his side, faithful to the very end, was his son, Jonathan. And David is now the king and David has been a very successful king. He has expanded the borders of the kingdom. His military force is stronger than ever. It's a force to be reckoned with. Times are good. And it seems like things can only get better. And I guess David must have been sitting there thinking back over his life about the goodness of God how good God has been to him. All the things that God has done, he's been blessed beyond his wildest dreams. And then he remembers a promise as he remembers his friendship with Jonathan. And the king asks a question. The king asks a question, is there anyone left from the house of Saul, that I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. Kindness. Let's dig into this word kindness for a moment or two. Kindness is the Hebrew word hesed. And it's a word that's difficult to translate because it's got a range of meanings. Hesed is not just a feeling, it's an action. And I love how this theologian, John Oswald, defines it. He said, Hesed is a completely undeserved kindness and generosity. And it's a word that's often rendered mercy or grace. Mercy or grace. Hesed is love put to action. Hesed is faithful. And most importantly, hesed is the unfailing love that God has for you. The unfailing love that God has for you, for me. David decides to be generous. The author, Friedrich Buechner, he commented on this passage and he said this. He said, it was the kind of crazy, magnificent gesture David liked to make every once in a while. And it is a crazy, magnificent gesture. And friends, notice this. 
Notice this. David does not say, is there anyone out there who deserves some kindness? Is there anyone out there who's worthy of kindness? He just asks, is there anyone out there who I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? And there's this servant left over from Saul's time on the throne. His name was Ziba. We're getting all the names tonight. Ziba. And Ziba, he comes before the king and he says, as a matter of fact, there is someone. There is someone left over from Saul's family. And his name, as we will find out, is Mephibosheth. In JV Fall Conference, you're saying Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. And Ziba says, he's lame in both feet. He's crippled. He's disabled. Well, where was Mephibosheth? And in the verses that we read together, this is where it gets interesting because this is a brutal and violent error. When those in the family of a previous king are wiped out when a new king comes to power. You see, you did not want to have anyone, anyone from the previous regime left around to challenge your rule and reign. Folks, this is real life game of thrones. A brutal and violent era. So this guy Mephibosheth, we discover, is in self-imposed exile. And he's living in this place called Lo-Debar. So let's dig into that for a second. Lo-Debar. And we have this prefix in Hebrew, lo, which means no. No. And then we have this word, Debar. And that can be translated as word or thing. Word or thing. No word, no thing. Sounds like an attractive place to live, right? The name of this place was No Thing. Now, it may have been that there was no pasture there. So it wasn't a very attractive place to live and to work the land. Or it maybe was an insignificant town, the middle of nowhere. Luke Skywalker, he would say, well, if there's a bright center of the universe, you're in the place that it's farthest from. Low Debar. No place. Nowhere. No thing. And that's where we find Mephibosheth. So I want to ask a question tonight. Where are the low Debars in your city, in your town, in your community, in your country? Maybe it's a physical place. Maybe it's an area, a place where hope goes to die. Maybe it's a physical place, but maybe it's also a place of the heart, a dark and broken place. And in the world today, there is so much brokenness. 
There's economic brokenness. There's relational brokenness. There's sexual brokenness that's affecting so many lives and people are locked in these low debars, these lonely, dark, desolate places and they're in desperate need of hope. The question is, will we take the light of the gospel into those dark places? and let the light of the gospel shine. Because when the light shines, the darkness is extinguished. It's exposed for what it is. Where are the low debars in our communities? Where are the low debars? They're probably not very far for us to look. They might be in our youth group. They might be in, in our church. They might be in our family. Where was Mephibosheth? Low debar. Well, the next question is, what was Mephibosheth? What was Mephibosheth? Well, he's on the run. That's for sure. He's hiding for his life. And if that's not enough, he's lame in both his feet. How did that happen? Well, we got to backtrack a little bit. When news of Saul and Jonathan's Defeat arrived back at the palace and reached home. It's a scene of panic and it's a scene of chaos. And Mephibosheth at this point is just five years old. And his nurse picks him up and they're fleeing for their lives, but something happens. She drops him, falls, and Mephibosheth is injured. And as a result, he's crippled. He's lame in both feet. He became disabled. And nothing more is said about Mephibosheth until we get to this story in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So here's this guy, and he is the picture of human misery. And what's he doing? He's hiding from the king. He's hiding from the king. And isn't it interesting that Ziba is quick to point out that he's crippled in both feet. Did you pick that up when we read it? Look at it again in 2 Samuel. And Ziba said to the king, verse 3, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. It's almost as though Ziba is saying to the king, saying to David, hey, listen, there is someone. But David, you wouldn't want him around. I mean, he's not royal material. He won't fit in here. He's the wrong kind of kid. He's the wrong kind of kid. Can I ask you a question? As you look at your communities, your cities, your towns, where are those kids that are outside of your youth ministry that are not yet reached? that might in the eyes of someone be the wrong kind of kid. Because you see, with Jesus, the wrong kind of kid is the right kind of kid. The wrong kind of kid is the right kind of kid. I remember some years ago when I was walking into church, one of the churches that I worked in, I was walking, it was Sunday evening, and I was going to Sunday evening service. And 
our church had this cool little area at the front, like a little courtyard with some steps. It was a great place for skateboarding and BMXing and doing tricks and stuff. And there, there were these kids in and they were playing on their skateboards and on their bikes and they were doing tricks and they had waxed up the steps. Caretakers love that. They'd waxed up the steps so they could get some nice grinds going. And I'm chatting to them. I'm talking to them, finding out who they are because they weren't youth group kids. They weren't kids that ever came to any of our programs. I spent a little bit of time with them and then I said, hey, listen, have fun. Enjoy the space. And I started to walk into church and there was a person who kind of walked in and joined me as I was walking down the driveway, a person who will rename nameless because they turned to me and they said, I see the undesirables are in tonight. I see the undesirables are in tonight. I looked at him and I said, you know, they may not be desirable to you, but they're really desirable to Jesus. He loves them. Maybe God is calling you at Fall Conference 2022 to look out of your youth ministry and to start thinking, how are we going to reach? What might be the wrong kind of kid? And it's going to cost if you want to reach the wrong kind of kid. But it's a price that's worth paying because they're the right kind of kid in the eyes of Jesus. Are you tracking with me? And this message of, he doesn't fit in, David. Mephibosheth, he won't fit in around here. I think that's a message that young people get a lot today in the world. I think young people all over the world can agree with three things that they believe, many of them about themselves. I'm ugly, I don't matter, and I don't fit in. I've talked to young people all over the world, and when it gets right down to it, very often it's those things that they believe. I'm ugly, I don't matter, I don't fit in. And the reason they do that, the reason many of them believe that is because they're judging themselves by the wrong set of values. Their worth is based on this amazing, unbelievable weight of pressure and expectation that's been placed upon them. They've got to be perfect. They've got to look perfect. They've got to have perfect grades, perfect accomplishments. They've got to have perfect friends. I call it the myth of perfection. Because the scripture says, to all perfection, I see a limit. There's only one who's perfect, and that's God. Amen? But many young people are living with this, this immense pressure, and they feel like they don't measure up. They feel like they are insignificant, that they don't matter, that they don't fit in. We have a message of hope to give young people who believe that they are worthless and that they don't matter and that if they were not at your youth group, no one would miss them. So here's Mephibosheth, living in no place. And then one day, there is an amazing turn of events. A messenger from the king arrives, and he says, the king wants to see you. And I try to put myself in Mephibosheth's mindset. Let's read the scripture here. Let's track with the rest of the story and see what happens. 
Verse five, then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodebar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always and be paid homage. And he said, what is your servant that you should regard, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servant shall tell the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands to his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. The scriptures say that when Mephibosheth got back to the palace, and imagine that journey back to the palace, all the things that had to be running through his mind, he's about to face his worst enemy. He's about to face the king and he's a rebel from the king and he knows what rebels from the king deserve, instant death. He's perhaps wondering how it's going to happen. And then the scriptures say that David spoke first and called him by name. He said, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth answers, behold your servant. It's as if he's offering to be a slave just for one more day of life. But amazingly, he's cut off from David. And Mephibosheth's picture of the king gets radically altered. You see, all this time, Mephibosheth believed that he was hiding from a, he was hiding from a king who, was, who would only pursue him so he could punish him. But that day, that day his picture of the king was radically altered. The great A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think he's right. Because what we think about God determines how we live our lives. And if people do have a picture of God, I think it's usually one of three pictures. For many people, God is a bit like a cosmic doctor. You know? Someone you call on when you have a problem. God, get me out of this. But I'm sure that many of you, when you're passing by your doctor's office or doctor's surgery, you don't think to yourself, well, I haven't seen the doctor for a long time wonder how he or she is doing. I'll drop in for a coffee or a Coke. I mean, you don't do that, do you? You only call on the doctor when you have a problem that you need solved. But there's no relationship there beyond that. For many people, and even many people 
who say they're Christians, that's their picture of God. For others, their picture of God is a bit like a cosmic butler, like a cosmic waiter, you know? Someone who's there to give us what we want to make us happy. And we come to that kind of God with what I call the Spice Girls approach to prayer. (laughs) Do you remember the Spice Girls back in the 90s? The dream of the 90s is alive. The Spice Girls' first big hit song was Wannabe. Some of you know it. You love it. It goes like this. I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. Well, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. I want that, I want that, I want that. And that's how we come to God, if that's our picture of God. We say, God, I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. And we imagine God says, well, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. And then we come off with our wish list. That God's just there to grant us our requests and make us happy. And then there's a third picture of God, that God's a bit like a cosmic headmaster, head teacher, principal. Now, I don't know what your experience of school was like. I'm old now. It was a long time ago. But when I was in primary school, my primary school headmaster was psychotic. (laughs) Crazy guy. I mean, he'd be locked up today. And I kid you not. And back when I was in primary school, you could still be punished with the cane. Did you ever have that in your countries? Oh, you get punished by having the caned, you get one or two in each hand, try really hard not to cry. But my headmaster in primary school, he had this big list with all the kids' names written on this list. And there were five columns beside each name. And right beside the big list, there was a big black marker stuck to the wall. And whenever you did something wrong, your handwriting was untidy, your grammar was incorrect, or more serious errors that I may or may not have been guilty of at times. He would take that big black marker and he'd put a big black mark beside your name. And when you had five black marks beside your name, he would call you up to the front of the class, he'd open his drawer, he'd take out his cane, He'd flex it. He'd ask you to take, put out your hand. He'd go up on his tiptoes because that helps. And you'd get caned. And you know, for a lot of people, and for, even for a lot of Christians, that's their view of God. That God's just making his list and he's checking it twice and he's just waiting for us to mess up so he can punish us. And, and for the longest time as a young Christian, that was my picture of God a distorted picture of God. Many people, if they have one at all, they have a distorted picture of God. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What is your picture of God? That day, Mephibosheth discovers that the king is not the good sheriff, hunting him down only so he could punish him, 
but he's the good shepherd who has been pursuing him only so he can love him. That's our God. A loving father. Has your picture of God grown as you have grown in your faith? It has to. Or is your picture of God microscopic? Maybe here at Fall Conference this year, God has given you a panoramic God view. That's what we need, right? If we're going to be messengers of hope, if we're going to carry the fire into dark places, into low debars, if we're going to bring hope to people who don't fit in, who are hungry for it. And maybe as you think about your ministry and you think about the mission that awaits you, as you think about your city, maybe it just seems too big, impossible, too scary. We're way out of our depth. But maybe here God is saying, what's your God view? Is your God view big enough for the mission that lies before you? What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And look at the present that Mephibosheth gets for the sake of his father. I'm almost done. You'll be glad to hear. But look at these verses, 7 through to 11. And we see that David saves Mephibosheth from the shadow of death, and he prepares a table for him. Doesn't that sound familiar? And look what he gets. He gets protection. David says, do not fear. Do not fear. It's one of the most stunning things that Mephibosheth has ever heard in his life. Don't be afraid. He can't believe it. And one of the things I love most about Jesus in the Gospels is Jesus gave a lot of commands. He said a lot of things but he gave this one more than any other. He said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Mephibosheth enjoys protection and he enjoys provision. David says, I will restore to you everything that your grandfather had. David's, David's care for him, his kindness, hesed, goes beyond survival to sustenance, protection, provision. And finally, he says, and you will eat at my table. Verse 7, verse 11, and again in verse 13, right at the end of the chapter. You will eat at my table like one of the king's sons. It's a beautiful picture of what God has done for us, of our relationship with him. Our friends, so often we forget, don't we, that being a Christian is all about what Jesus has done for us. And we so easily get caught up in what we are doing. It's as though if we do great things for God, we'll get truly spiritual. You know, if, if we can somehow gain intimacy by our efforts and by all our activity and all our doing. This passage helps us to stop and remember and to give thanks to our amazing Savior for all he has done for us. 
So I want to encourage you, Fall Conference, to guard your heart and to abide in him. And don't confuse or reduce your relationship with God to a task or an activity. And the final thing that I want us to think about tonight is why Mephibosheth? Why this story? Why did I talk about this passage tonight? Out of all the passages we could have looked at in the scriptures. Well, very simply, we talked about this story because it's our story, isn't it? It's our story. Many of us spent a good part of our lives hiding from a God who was pursuing us only so he could love us. And our hearts break for young people who are hiding in all kinds of ways. They're hiding in sports. They're hiding in popularity. They're hiding in music. They're hiding in beauty. They're hiding in coolness. They're hiding in success. But the wonder of God is our God, our good God, our kind God, is that he pursues his children even when they reject him and when they ignore him and when they rebel against him. Yes, we are all rebels from the king, every single one of us crippled by a fall. But God has come and God has called us into relationship with him and we enjoy his protection, his provision and position as his children. Amen, Fall Conference? Isn't that the coolest thing in the world? Does that not put some fuel in your flame? This love that we experience from him compels us. And maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, wait a minute, Paul. I don't deserve any of this. I don't deserve kindness like this. And you're right. That's why it's called grace. Grace, grace, getting what you do not deserve and you have no right to expect. As we think about grace, as we think about hesed, as we think about this amazing kindness that we experience from God, and where our response is, well, I'm a nobody. I don't deserve that. And there's this wonderful story told about Queen Elizabeth in the United Kingdom, We sadly recently lost um, Her Majesty the Queen after 70 years of faithful rule and a faithful witness and example. And there's a story told about her when she was a little girl up in Scotland, in Balmoral, her favorite place. And she loved to explore around the estate. And when she was a little girl, there's a story told that she got lost when she was exploring I hope this story's true, because it's amazing. She didn't know where to, how to get back home. And she came upon a little, a little cottage, a little croft, a little house. And there was a lady there. She opened the door and she said, what's wrong? And little Queen Elizabeth said, I'm lost. I don't know how to get home. And the woman said to her, What's your name? Because she didn't recognize her at all. She says, what's your name? Who are you? And she said these words. She said, I'm a nobody, but my father is the king. I'm a nobody, 
but my father is the king. Full conference, our father is the king. We've experienced his radical, amazing grace. Our response to that is worship. Our response to the father's love. God bless you. Thank you for listening to Josiah Venture Stories. For more information about who we are and our vision and mission, visit us at josiahventure.com and follow us on social media. If you have any questions about this episode or like to get in touch with our guest, please email social at josiahventure.com. To help more people hear about this podcast, please leave us an honest written review or share this episode on your social media. Thank you, friends, and have a blessed day.